I'm Miles, and I'm here to understand the mysteries of romance. And I'm Megan Bob, and I'm here to help with the aid of a book that I have mixed feelings about. <laughs> this is The Next Wrestling Fan After Dark, a romance bonus episode that I got because I scored 15 points on the cheap pop quiz. And because I got 15 points, we're joined by Chris Newton, noted internet vampire sexologist, <laughs> That's right. to discuss how to marry a millionaire vampire. Hello. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Sorry for jumping the gun and saying hi to you before you said hi to me. It's your podcast. That's your right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm very happy to be here to talk about this book. Before we come to my prepared words, because I certainly prepared some, I wanted to ask you as our guest about your own experiences with romance as a genre of literature. So I actually, uh, throughout my life, I've not read a lot of romance, but um, I briefly worked in a bookstore. And when I did, I sort of made it a point of checking out all the different genres. So I'd kind of go in a circuit and check out, you know, popular authors from the various different ones. So during that period, I read some romance. So the first romance novel I read, actually, I, I podcasted about. Uh, I read Catherine Coulter's Aftershocks. Mm -hmm. which was such an experience for a first romance novel. I actually went on a, a now defunct podcast called Good Looks, Bad Books to talk about it. Ooh. Then I read like a few others. I did, um, there, I read one of like the Christmas Angel series that Debbie McComer did. I did like a couple oh, others. Oh, shit. Yeah. And then I did like, you know, I've read Austin. I've read the Brontes. And I also at one point was at uh, Powell's, the local big independent bookstore mm -hmm. in Portland. And I picked up a Choose Your Own Adventure romance book. <gasps> wow. But uh, yeah. That's about my experience. So I've, I've got a few under my belt. Wow. You have read what I would term old school romance, I think. How is it mostly fade to black or is it explicit sex? I don't think I've read anything too explicit in this genre. Aww. There was some real gross stuff in Aftershocks. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was not so much the mechanics of the sex as like the situation. It was like the, mm -hmm. the attitude towards sex. Mm. But, you know, like, there was some spanking, there was some, like, oh. punishment sex of a grown woman, for sure. Okay. So, uh, yeah, it was disgusting, but not, like, <laughs> not in a sexy way. Oh, okay, that's a damn shame. I feel so bad. I'm so sorry that you haven't had, like, the raunchy fun times that romance promises as a genre. But getting on to that, when I contacted you to ask you to do this with me, I gave you the choice of several novels for this podcast, some of them much spicier and some of them much, I would say, quote unquote, better. You chose this one. What were you hoping for when you picked How to Marry a Millionaire Vampire? I think it was like it was a lot of things. The first one was that some of the others that you suggested seemed a little heavier. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, for like compulsory reading, I just felt like right now I didn't want to do a big heavy thing. <laughs> Compulsory. Um, yes. <laughs> well, you know what? Like uh, this actually, this just happened to me. I picked up a an erotic horror book called Engines of Desire uh, on the recommendation of a uh, listener to my podcast, Rachel Kohler, and I started to read it. Very well written, but in the first story in the book, I got like like I don't know a few pages in, and then someone started being bad to a child. Mm. <gasps> like I'm sure this is great, and in a different time, I would like, but like right now, I'm not up for this. So goodbye. 
You can't do that when you got a podcast with people. Yeah, so I wanted something a little lighter. And I also thought, like, of all these books, like, I'm going to read sexy books in the future. I'm going to read well-written mm-hmm. books in the future. I'm never going to have a chance. Like, if I don't take this opportunity to read the book with the vampire and the dentist, I'll always wonder what that book was. <laughs> and now you know. Mm-hmm. I respect and just want to say the boner in me recognizes and celebrates the boner in you because <laughs> I, too am so drawn by the lure of the bazaar. <laughs> I wanted to prepare some words before this because I think this is important to understanding in some ways, both wrestling and romance, but certainly in my perspective, especially romance. So, <clears throat> in honor of stupid things. <laughs> so, wrestling is a medium where the vast majority of conflict is resolved through matches. Usually wrestling, although given the existence of the monster truck sumo match, one cannot always rely on that. Sure. (laughs) Romance novels are a genre where the vast majority of issues are solved through relationships, love, and sex, although not always in that order. If you strip down your options for solving problems to a very bare-bones set of options, you have a unique problem. I mean, if you value realism, you have a unique problem. (laughs) Your problem is that now you have to abide more or less by the rules you've set for your art. So regardless of the problem, like if you want somebody gone from the promotion, you have to beat them. If you want to humiliate them, you have to wrestle them for their hair. If you want custody of their child, you wrestle for it. Yeah, clearly. Is that not how everybody does it? <laughs> Romance makes the assumption that any and all situations are a good time for love. So the post-apocalypse in a world ravaged by dragons? Well, you kiss a dragon. Dracula conquering 1800s Boston? Like, hop in that coffin, baby. <laughs> Encounter with Jekyll and Hyde? Obviously an opportunity for an unconventional threesome. Lizard men just rescued you, a single mother, and your toddler? Say hello to your new stepdad, little one. <laughs> insiders to both wrestling and romance are probably salivating because this stuff is ridiculous it's stupid and it's joyful sure it's not always well executed but when it is it's incredible a strong gimmick for a match or a romance novel is almost too shiny to resist and to outsiders there is frequently an assumption that insiders aren't in on the joke that somehow wrestling fans don't know that gimmick matches are often stupid and absurd. Somehow romance readers don't get that a book about vampire angel Viking Marines is stupid. That's a real book series, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Of course it is. Uh, Yeah, of fucking course it's stupid. And the classist perception that wrestling and romance fans are too dumb to know stupid when they see it is hammered home every time you see a comment from someone saying, you know that wrestling is fake, right? Or, you know that romance is unrealistic, right? It's like, no fucking shit. And here I thought Avengers Endgame was a goddamn documentary. Thanks, asshole. (laughs) The thing is, stupid isn't the same as bad. Weird isn't the same as bad. And furthermore, I would say there's nothing wrong with bad either. So a great wrestling match can come out of something completely stupid. And the stupidity of it is part of the spice. Watching two grown-ass men wrestle for an action figure limb is different than watching two grown-ass men wrestle because it's their job and they want to be good at it. A great romance novel can come out of something completely bizarre and nonsensical. And in a weird way, it's like poetry, because poetry has arbitrary restrictions that force you to change the way you complete an idea. Hmm. A romance novel with a bananas premise changes the hoops you have to jump through to have a meet-cute, 
to create an attraction, to push the characters towards one another. Watching someone thread a needle through a wild set of unnecessary new stipulations is the same thrill as watching somebody attempting to walk the tightrope while riding a unicycle, balancing a goldfish (laughs) bowl on their head while blindfolded. No one asked for it, but you've upped the stakes and the complexity of the equation. And in a weird way, that makes it hard to resist. Now, caveat, that is not to say that How to Marry a Millionaire Vampire is a great romance novel. For context, it came out the same year as Twilight, the cutting edge of 2005. And it came out as a printed paper book. Kindle came around in 2007 and opened up the world of online publishing, which has resulted in an almost immeasurable boom in the subgenre of paranormal romance. How to Marry a Millionaire Vampire was a relatively bold risk in 2005, in a time when maybe 200 paranormal romances a year were published. This was daring to be utterly stupid and unapologetically ridiculous. How to Marry a Millionaire Vampire is actually, I would say, a somewhat tame version of the Bananas romance novel. I mean, don't get me wrong, it is fucking wild. But there are far wilder and weirder books out there, probably some so weird that I don't even want to touch them. Yeah, no, I'm aware. I'm aware, actually, of that. (laughs) Thank you, Bob. You're welcome. (laughs) But for 2005, it was probably unheard of. The point is that Carol and Sparks wrote a book that has an unapologetically stupid premise A dentist who fears blood is being asked to fix the broken fang of a vampire. It's simple and it's ridiculous, and readers know that. Just like wrestling fans know that The Undertaker fighting AJ Styles in a goddamn boneyard match is stupid. Thor Ragnarok is also fucking stupid. People still quote Monty Python and the Search for the Holy Grail, rightfully so, and that film would struggle to fit more stupidity inside it. Fucking stupid is the jumping off place for greatness if you're brave enough to do it. And even if it's not great, I value a risk. Wrestling values a risk because you'll remember it. You're not going to forget the match that had that dumb stipulation, even if it was bad and terrible. I am not ever going to forget the shit show that was AEW's exploding barbed wire death match. I honestly don't even remember any other matches on the card for that pay-per-view. I remember the stadium stampede vividly because Adam Page chased Sammy Guevara on literal horseback and Matt Hardy got dunked in a swimming pool and visited his past lives. Romance fans and wrestling fans know that the premise is stupid and that the execution is utterly ridiculous in every way. In our hunger to see someone achieve something unique, we are willing to take the risk that the match or a book, might be completely terrible. We're curious. We want to be surprised. We want to know if you could put certain ingredients together and still come out with something good. And in a much grander sense, it is the meta-commentary. It is the wink at the camera saying, yes, it's all pretend, but watch this. Because ultimately, it's gesturing at something bigger. It's pointing to what will we do for the things that matter to us. And sure, it's answering that question in a fucking stupid way. But it's not dodging the question. Amy Bonifons, an author of literary romance, which is basically romance that the New York Times thinks is intellectually worthy, wrote for LitHub, love is hairy, absurd, and dangerous. Of course, it's sometimes mundane and boring too, but only in the way that if you had a pet python named Carl, 
you'd probably get used to him after a while. Fail to even notice him sometimes. Think of him mostly as an obligation. Shoot, who will feed Carl when I go to that conference in Tampa? And then once in a while, you'd catch a glimpse of the terrarium in the corner and think, holy shit, I live with this thing that could kill me. Carl could totally (laughs) kill me. And then you'd walk over and lift Carl out of his terrarium and marvel not only that Carl chooses every day not to kill you, but that he exists in this world at all. Millions of years of evolution culminating in the sleek, muscled cable of his body, the dizzying beauty of his scales, the deep black knowing in his tiny, bead-like eyes. Literature can remind us of love's inherent strangeness and can illustrate this strangeness in vivid, surprising ways. And the stupid premise reawakens us to the absurdity of love, of existence. It is the reminder that the weirdest things in life have some kernel of reality and the most important things in life have some kernel of the utterly bizarre. It is bizarre that anyone cares for a tacky-ass belt. And yet, we understand the feeling of wanting to be recognized and lauded for our accomplishments. It's bizarre that anyone would fight over being publicly insulted in a promo. But we know what it's like to want to punch someone who was rude to us. Is that really any weirder than falling in love with a lizard man who holds your fussy toddler and tells them stories until they fall asleep? (laughs) Is that so much weirder than loving the person that finally understands the wholeness of who you are, even if they're a fucking ghost? Yeah, it's weird. Sure, it's extremely weird. But the thing at the heart of it isn't weird at all. It's maybe, dare we say more honest. It acknowledges the inherent unfairness of life and its disregard for timing, for our dignity, for our comfort. And yet, it is also stupid. And that's okay. In fact, there was a recent romance novel that came out in March 2021, right as we finally had a COVID vaccine. It's called Alien Quarantine Rescue and imagines a prolonged, overwhelmingly deadly pandemic that forces the heroine to quarantine completely alone for five years as she loses the people she loves to the quote-unquote B-Rona virus. Wow. Wow. And then a hot alien shows up saying that he can give her the antibodies she needs right from his vibrating alien dick. (laughs) It is stupid. But there was a moment in the pandemic when we all would have said yes, please to that alien offer. And the comfort of being touched in the time of social distancing suddenly becomes poignant in a way that it hadn't been before. The stupid thing is perhaps the candy coating on something more uncomfortable. Uh, Or perhaps it's just very stupid. Either way, it gives us an experience that toys with our expectations, awakens our curiosity, and shakes our complacency. It can call forth a kind of artistry that's far more demanding than getting people to care about the inherent pathos of forbidden love like so many romances, or aging out of your career like the I'm sorry I love you match. I am here to say that the stupid thing, the weird thing, the unreasonably bizarre thing matters. It matters hugely. It is the stretching of the art form. It is the exploration of the outer boundaries of how this art form functions and what it can and can't do. You need these pioneers. Even if they fail, you need them. The people doing the weird shit are the people who help redefine what's possible for your art. Maybe you never need another stadium stampede or custody for a child match, 
but you learn something about the art form from prodding at those boundaries. I mean, after all, what is Orange Cassidy, if not a very stupid joke about the art form of wrestling? And yet, his style makes a different kind of match possible. Creative risks, even the stupid ones, maybe especially the stupid ones, are the ones that take the art form to its breaking point and reveal the larger shape of what the art form is. So embrace the stupid thing. Love and celebrate the stupid thing. Even if it's not well executed or perfect, stupid art is the beating heart of what is possible when we stop trying to take ourselves seriously and accept that maybe stupid things are good, actually. All right. Well, thank you for that, Bob. I have lots of feelings about what you were uh, just saying, especially because Lord knows these days I'm on a fucking crusade against anyone who takes professional wrestling too seriously, which is everyone. A lot of the times when I talk about, like, you shouldn't take wrestling too seriously because wrestling is stupid, I don't mean that as a point against wrestling. I just mean that as, like, a data point in what the medium is and what the art form is, and that should inform how you feel about it and how much you care about, like, fucking billionaire companies taking shots at each other on Twitter. Like... (laughs) (laughs) I think, like, wrestling is a really good example of where you can take a healthy approach and most people don't. Because it's not... I think when sometimes when you say wrestling is stupid, people understand it as wrestling doesn't matter. Right. Which, Mm -hmm. like, on a certain level, like... You know, anything we're doing that is not like saving a dying planet maybe is like at the bottom of the priority list. But in terms of like, you know, what is happening in art, it's not that it's not important. It's just that you have to um, not get worked into only finding importance in this kind of narrative of what the art is and must be and instead be able to find what is important about small things. Like, I think that's one of the reasons that um, stupid stories are so important is because it allows you to create importance and create meaning at a different level from the sort of official narrative stakes of what's going on. You know what I mean? Mm. Like every match has stakes of who wins and who loses. But if you put something else on the line because you escape that dichotomy, you mm. can tell a different kind of story. And in the same way, you can watch wrestling without wholly investing in like which company is ahead of, in the ratings. <laughs> you know, does the guy that I like have the title or not? How does this screen time compare to this? And just like, Find something else, you know, art has many riches within it. You can find something important. If you pay attention to what's going on and just accept, like, the stupid stuff matters. I think with romance novels, the difference, because there are so many similarities between the two, as we've discussed before, but, like, the thing about wrestling is that the stupidity is, like, works hand-in-hand with the fact that it's a live-performed medium. Mm-hmm. And so I think, like... Part of the reason that I think it's so important that we don't take wrestling too seriously is, A, because it's so clearly a performance. Do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? But it's also, like, so clearly a performance that's being performed by real people. So, like, impressive things are happening. In wrestling, you have limits as to what you can do to tell a story, right? Because, like, you're a person with another person in the wrestling ring. You know, romance novels you have really no limits because you're writing and you can write whatever you want to. But where romance hooks in with this, with the stupidity thing is that like, I think it could really be a force for helping people understand that lots of different things are sexy. Yes. 100%. Yeah. So like the fact that it engages in these stupid fucking antics and it's not like sex of all things to not take itself too seriously. Sex is the top of the list. Oh yeah. 
if romance novels stop being stupid, that would just be a, a horrific tragedy. Oh yeah. <laughs> there are times when it's it's just too stupid for me, and it may not be too stupid for somebody else. It's just too stupid for me, and that's fine. This was not one of those times. This was exactly stupid enough. And boy, is there a lot of stupidity in there. Yep. And with that, let's get into Miles' mansplanation. Miles, take it away. Chris, feel free to interject. And certainly, as the vampire sexologist and vampire expert that you are, I I would like to hear your takes on these vamps. Okay, I I have my lab coat on. I'm ready to go. (laughs) Thank you. All right, so we open with Roman Dragonesti. And I have to tell you, if I met some random dude in a bar and he was like, Hi, I'm Roman Dragonesti, I'd be like, Cool, so you're a vampire, right? (laughs) And he'd be like, Yeah, how'd you know? And I'd be like, Bro, your name is Roman Dragonesti. (laughs) (laughs) Roman Dragonesti is like a rich vampire scientist who spends his time coming up with new innovations for improving vampire life and providing alternatives to feeding on humans. And also brooding. He broods a lot. A lot of fucking romance novel heroes brood a lot. It's kind of their thing. In this case, he's brooding because he's an abomination in the eyes of God. Yada, yada, yada. It's pretty (laughs) typical vampire shit. Like, this is what vampires think about themselves. Uh, In this case, he is working on a formula that will allow vampires to stay awake during the day, as opposed to magically conking out the second sunrise hits, which is what happens in this universe. And he's brooding over the fact that he wouldn't even know what to do with those extra hours if he hadn't. (laughs) This brooding gets interrupted by Gregory and Laszlo, who are also vampires and Roman's employees, who are here to present him with a bold new solution for vampires who don't want to drink (laughs) synthetic blood out of a bottle. So they've modified a sex doll so that it has blood in it, so that you can get the impression of biting into a nubile young lady, but you are not actually biting into one. Thus, presumably making the whole don't eat humans thing an easier sell, especially for the mysterious gang of terrorist vampires known as the Malcontents. They're presenting the solution like, hey, buddy, I know how we can get the vampire terrorists off our back. Let's give them <laughs> sex dolls with blood in them. <laughs> this will never work. These people should have watched the episode of Voyager where Tuvok is in Ponfar and they try to make a hologram. It, oh my oh god, they Jesus. totally should have. Yeah, yeah. If only vampires would keep up with, you know, modern <laughs> literature, then they would have avoided this whole problem. So, Roman gives this thing a shot, and it works pretty well. Actually, it works too well, because he starts getting really into it. <laughs> he, he, like, realizes how into it he's getting. He tries to, like, pull back to stop biting this next doll. One of his fangs gets stuck in the material and ripped out, which is just fucking, like, when I read this, I was like, okay, it's gonna be this kind of book, and I'm here for it. Like, <laughs> the, the premise of this book is what ha- what happened if a vampire got his fang ripped out by biting into a sex doll. <laughs> it's such a clever way to set this story up in, in, like, a structural way, but it begins, like, the most implausible thing in this book to me is that our heroine in this story falls in love with Roman, who clearly is like a 13-year-old vampire. I mean, he's yeah. like, like, this is the shit that happens to you when you're like finding creative new ways to masturbate when you're a 13-year-old boy. <laughs> <laughs> no, see, see, here's the thing, though. If you've met some adult men, and I have, 
you will find that adult men spend most of their time justifying the fact that they're still 13-year-old boys at heart. So, like, these guys are good here going like, oh, yeah, no, we, we're we doing science. We built a thing. This is going to, like, help people. This is going to be a real turning point in our attempts to improve vampire culture. It's a naked sex doll. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, but, like, it's going to help people. I don't want to get into this because it's a whole other discussion, but my wife and I had a whole talk branching off of this of, like, what is the appeal of the real doll and does this book understand it? Because I think this book does not. And, you know, <laughs> no wonder. Like, I'm not saying it's easy, but if this book had been about real dolls rather than vampires, I would like to see a real extended discussion of, like, how does this work? Like, what what is happening in people's minds when they get so obsessed with this? But, uh, yeah, a, a talk for another time. Please invite me back for your real doll episode. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, 100%. All right, so now Roman needs a dentist, and he needs one tonight, because vampires, you see, heal their injuries while they're sleeping. So if he goes to bed without getting the tooth fixed, he's just going to be Roman the one-fanged wonder for the rest of his life, which is forever. (laughs) The rest of his life is forever. (laughs) And this is where Shauna Whalen enters the picture. Shauna is a dentist and also a member of the Witness Protection Program, uh, after seeing her friend get murdered by the Russian mob. Uh, So she's bored and lonely and eating too much pizza. There's a lot of weird stuff about women and their weight in this book. Yes, there fucking is. And it is so weird. And I'm like, oh, that's right. It was 2005. Yeah, it's really not great. (laughs) It's not. There's a lot of 2005, like, covering this book. It's like getting in a fucking time machine. And going back to just after George W. Bush had been reelected and going like, oh, fuck, yeah, that's what it was like. If you ever think the world has not improved in any way since, you know, 2005, it fucking has. Hmm. It really fucking has. Not in all the ways we'd, we'd goddamn like, but it's sure as shit better than it was. Interesting argument on on human progress. I'll take it. (laughs) I want to push back on that very slightly because I see your point Mm -hmm. and I think hopefully we're at a place where this book is maybe making a point that is not necessary now to make. But I have to say in the book's defense, this is a woman who's been through some real stressful shit. Her body is changing because she's stress eating and all that. It makes sense to me. She's thinking about it. And I love the fact that while it comes up in her mind from time to time, not in an overly self-recriminating way, but just in like, occasionally I worry about my body. Mm -hmm. That shit is not on Roman's mind. Nobody's concerned about it, but her. It's just that she's in a place where she's, among other things in her life, worrying about what her body looks like, which strikes me as, if nothing else, recognizable as human behavior. Like, even if nobody else has it on their mind how your butt looks, sometimes that's what's on your mind. Oh, yeah. I am happy to accept that, and I think it is understandable that she would have complicated feelings about, in a time when her life is out of control, feeling like her body is also out of control. And this is the first place where it comes up, but it's a thing the book does like throughout. So Roman shows up and is like, hey, sexy, put this tooth back in my head. He's doing the standard vampire thing that they do when they deal with mortals, which is to say he is trying to control her mind and, like, give her the illusion that it's a regular tooth and not, like, a massive fucking fang. But Shauna is strangely resistant to his mental powers. (laughs) Hmm, interesting. This came out in 2005, the same year as Twilight, you say? Yup. Because let me tell you. In this, and in many other instances, this book reminds me a lot of Twilight, and it came out like four months earlier. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying. I'm just saying. 
So he's like, well, I don't understand. You're, you, I can't mind control you. And she's like, I'm not putting this wolf tooth in your face. And at this point, the Russian mob shows up to kill her because they found her and they're going to kill her. Uh, but Roman rescues her and after some convincing, gets her to climb in the back of Laszlo's car with him, which results in just a delightful scene <laughs> where because he's like, you got to keep your head down. Otherwise, they'll see you. So her head's in his lap, and like as the car accelerates and then stops, she keeps her head keeps bumping into his erection. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like this is one of those things where I'm like, wow, this is super dumb, but I can totally see it happening. <laughs> they're already super, super into each other, right? Like from the word go, they're very much into each other. He is super hot. He thinks she's super hot. Like she's super hot. They're both really hot. Like, you know, whatever. So Roman takes her home. For her protection, because he has realized that uh, that Ivan Petrovsky, who we'll get to later, is uh, after her. She meets the other members of his household, including the Scottish Highlander security team. Yeah! And Radinka, who is another mortal. Uh, she's Gregory's mom, and she's like kind of Roman's assistant. They managed to hide the whole vampire thing from her successfully, despite all <laughs> odds. <laughs> Possibly because she's not super right. Into I mean, look, like, look, look. I I say that, but that's unfair because like you're not gonna go to a vampire place naturally, right? It's just you're gonna <laughs> your brain's gonna come up with other explanations beyond oh hey they're clearly vampires. She does realize that Roman is Roman Dragonesti, the head of Roman Tech Industries, which makes him like one of the smartest and most altruistic men alive or or dead, whatever. She doesn't know that. <laughs> So she's like, holy shit, this guy, he is brilliant and altruistic and super hot and he's into me. Okay. She goes up to like his room and the three vampires start to like chisel away at her defenses together. And then Roman is like, no, we can't do this. So instead of like trying to break into her mind, because they have to break into her mind so that they'll convince her to implant the tooth because she won't do it because it's it's the wolf tooth. So she has had a fear of blood ever since her friend got killed in front of her, which has made her dental career suffer somewhat. So Roman is like, hey, I'm going to hypnotize you and help you get over your fear of blood. And she's like, all right. So in that way, he's able to get past her mental defenses, is able to finally mind control her, teleports her to a nearby dental office because vampires can teleport in this universe. And she puts his fang back in without realizing what's really happening. Uh, while in this state, she could also read his mind, which he did not expect. Uh, and <laughs> their interactions here resulted in him getting yet another erection. A lot of erections for Roman in this book. <laughs> I suppose that's pretty standard romance, not all the material, but like, there's a lot of erection-based content in this one. <laughs> there's a ton, and like, it, everything about interpreting this book hinges on the scene with the real doll, because if it weren't for that, then it would be like, he is just so hot for her. Like of all the centuries, she's the one. But because he has this raging boner already in like the very beginning with a right. plastic doll, it's like, that's just Roman, man. That's just, <laughs> it's always out and ready to go. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> all right. So they get finished up just before sunrise and Roman takes Shauna down to her bed because she's fallen asleep after the hypnosis. Uh, but the sun comes up before he can leave. So he just collapses into bed with her. One thing I really like about the vampires in this world is that at night, their bodies function essentially like living bodies, which is why <laughs> Roman can get all these erections. But during the day, they basically die again. So Shauna wakes up with Roman's dead body in her bed <laughs> and freaks the fuck out, as you do. 
Everybody's like, no, he's fine. He's just, he's just really super asleep. They all, my, <laughs> look, we all, we're all very deep sleepers around here. And she's like, <laughs> she's like, no, he's dead. <laughs> like, I am a medical professional. Oh my God. She then has a conversation with Radinka, who tells her that she was hypnotized and did dental work and comes up with a, like, maybe you gave him too much anesthetic story, mm. which works well enough that Shauna, you know, I mean, she's able to accept it when Roman wakes up again, and she's really, really happy that he's alive, obviously, and, like, throws her arms around him because she thought he was thought she had killed him. <laughs> so when she goes to see him, things, like, officially start to get hot and heavy. They kiss for the first time, and then Roman starts getting really into it, and his fangs try to pop out, which fucking hurts because one of them is being held in with a split. But once again, he manages to kind of explain things away, and she leaves, like, pretty happy in the knowledge that this might actually be a real thing between them. And then, she meets his harem. Yup. Which, deepest of all, of all possible size. The harem. The harem. I don't love the thing where all coven masters have to have a harem because it's expected, and I really don't love the thing that where these are pretty much nameless and faceless women who we never meet again yes. after this scene. Like, their only personality traits are wanting to fuck Roman. <laughs> and it's bizarre to me. She takes the time to flesh out a couple of them a little bit. Like, I think the one's name was Darcy, who, like, was kind of more modern dressed. She is the heroine of the next book. Is she really? Okay. Huh. Well, as as we'll see, I did not see that coming. They just never shows up again. Like, just never shows up again. None of them. Nope. They don't matter and who cares? Yeah. 2005! Yeah, and at the end, it's like, when he eventually gets rid of them at the end, he's like, oh, it's okay, I just gave him to Gregory. And it's like, okay, cool, great, so they're slaves, okay? <laughs> like, This is one of a number of places in the book where I feel like the structural work was done. Like, I think the math is solid on this book in terms of, like, getting the world and the plot to hang together, but yeah. maybe it's a little bit tin-eared with, like, how you... How you set that up in a way that's responsible to the characters and that does not leave the reader feeling weird, because it's at least a viable story to say, okay, there was a time when there was such a degree of sexism that even if you're a female vampire, like you need sort of like, mm -hmm. uh, you need a male in your life for like public facing purposes because the society is all fucked up. And these women are from that time. So there's a process of getting them to a place where they can interact with the normal world just because they don't have like the means of support because of like when they became vampires. That has to do with, like, money and skill and all this stuff that is, like, there's a story to be told there. And honestly, there's, like, a feminist story to be told there about, like, oh, yeah. you know, structural impediments to women functioning in society. This is not at all interested in telling that story. Right. <laughs> These women exist only really to be, like, the purest form of one of the worst things romance novels do, which is to, like distinguish the woman we're supposed to like by showing all these other mm -hmm. women who are trash and aren't important and like they're bad women and this sh and she's not so you should like her because right. yep. they're just like in this room it's like a bad random encounter in a role-playing game it's like you walk into the room it's like here's 12 women who are garbage anyway yes yeah so all of that i agree with but mainly this is irritating because i hate it when stories generate conflict through misunderstanding and miscommunication mm -hmm. which is what this is so shauna gets super jealous of the harem when she finds out the roman's harem <laughs> and then she goes and discovers a bunch of open coffins in the basement that are made up like beds. <laughs> so she's like, all right, I'm getting the fuck out of here. And she does. And she uh, she contacts her like U.S. Marshal person who is supposed to be helping her adjust yeah. to witness protection and stuff. And he answers and sounds really weird. 
I was very proud of her for like being like, you sound weird for some reason. I'm not going to tell you yes. where I am. But she does still agree to meet him at a safe house, which, sure. So, oh, hey, uh, so I mentioned the Russian mobsters are being led by a Russian vampire. And his name is Ivan Petrovsky. And he wants <gasps> to collect the bounty on Shana's head because he hates Roman and also he wants to be rich. He is the leader of the Malcontents, a.k.a. the True Ones, as it turns out, uh, who all hate Roman for the synthetic blood shit because it is robbing them of their traditions and also, can't forget this crucial point, making their women gain weight because one of the synthetic blood drinks is chocolate and they love the chocolate one because the ladies, they love those desserts, <laughs> but you can't, let them, you can't let them have too many of them because otherwise they'll get fat. <laughs> I realize this is coming from the villains, and so, like, that's a thing. But, like, also, Roman is producing a diet blood drink for women, so they will be less fat. Yup. This is indefensible, and I think more so for the fact that it clearly exists only to set up the blood light pun. The pun only makes it worse. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we can't have any of this. So it turns out Ivan and his coven are the ones who got to the U.S. Marshal and have used him to set a trap for Shauna, but fortunately she manages to figure it out, and uh, with the help of a very fun taxi driver named Oringo, who I really enjoyed, she books it over to Romatech, because she's like, who can I get help from? I can get help from Radinka, because all this time she's like, oh my god, Roman is such a pig, he has 11 women at his beck and call. So she's going to go get help from Radinka, because Radinka was like really sweet to her, and also she claims to have had psychic visions of Shanna and Roman getting together, so sure. <laughs> Unfortunately, Shauna arrives at Robotech in the middle of Roman's big annual vampire gala. Uh, oh, his, Jesus. his buddies, Angus and Jean-Luc, are in town. There's a crew from DVN, the Digital Vampire Network, which I really, really enjoy that they can show up on digital film. Yeah. That's fun. <laughs> and it's like a black and white event, which makes Shauna stand out even more when she shows up in hot pink. More on this kind of thing a little bit later. And uh, it is during this event that she finally realizes that all these people are fucking vampires. Honestly, she (laughs) takes it okay, considering. (laughs) Roman sees her and, like, teleports her away to, like, the silver-lined safe room. uh, And he tells her the story about how he became a vampire. Basically, he used to be a wandering monk who thought he could heal any illness and committed the sin of pride. And uh, ends up getting turned. And he manages to, like pretty easily, I think, overcome her initial horror at the entire situation. Yeah. Uh, which is then allows Shauna to bring up her initial reason why she ran away, which was the harem, and he's like, I don't even have sex with them. And she's like, really? And he's like, well, not physically. <laughs> and she's like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> this goddamn book. <laughs> and she, he's like, well, vampire sex is, is mind sex. And she's like, oh, really? That's very convenient. And he's like, no, like, I can show you. Let me show you. I'll prove it to you. Only then a fucking bomb goes off because (laughs) Ivan showed up to the gala and he had like one of his goons plant a bomb while he was doing this big dramatic speech revealing himself as the leader of the true ones, which everyone kind of figured out like before. (laughs) They were like, yeah, it's probably him. As we see throughout the book, one of Ivan's biggest character traits is that he's just a tool. Like, he's bad at everything. Yeah. He thinks he's dealt Roman's operation this crippling blow with the bomb, but it turns out to be nothing. They're all like, it's fine. I kind of, like, love that he's like, haha, Dragonesti, I am your big villain. And they're like, eh. (laughs) 
He is like a two-bit criminal living in this cramped-ass place in Brooklyn and can't get his shit together no matter what he does and is not a threat to anybody except Immortal. He's the worst villain. What is the book doing to having such a weak villain? It serves the purpose of having a, a of making the book kind of a lighthearted romp with a happy ending where nobody dies. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, true. Because, like, if he were more competent, it would be a little bit of a darker book. Mm, I have been reading some very dark horror romance lately, and so my tolerance is sky high at the moment. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, man. He didn't even, like, take over a city and destroy a civilization. Like, I, yeah. what is this guy? This is nothing. <laughs> Later on, they when they do the second bomb and Radinka gets taken out by the second bomb, but she's not mm. actually dead. She just gets injured. I was like, okay, nobody's dying in this book then. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. They go back to Roman's house after the bombing. And this is when he's like, no, let me show you the vampire sex. And she's like, all right, I'm ready for the vampire mind sex. And it's pretty fucking hot, to be honest. Although Roman does have to bail a couple of times to take care of something. Shauna learns later that what he was doing was trying to keep the harem from joining them. Because <laughs> they are so desperate for mind sex. Roman, can you just give them mind sex more often, occasionally? They're so desperate for mind sex. They're so horny. And theoretically, because it's mind sex, they can, like, get in on it. Yeah. And so this sends Shauna into another fucking rage spiral because she doesn't want anybody getting in on their sex, which is understandable, especially if she doesn't know about it. Like, you know, consent's a thing. Can we just take a moment to talk about the mind sex for, for one brief moment? Because I want to make clear, it is like you put out a fucking bat signal, but for mind sex and everybody's like, oh shit, I can get in on this. It is that everybody in the house, the harem knows, and the fucking Scottish vampire clan, who's there for security, also knows, and they join in to stop the harem and are, like, (laughs) yelling at the harem to get out. So everybody in this fucking house knows that Roman is trying to fuck Shauna, but Shauna doesn't know that, and so it's just so goddamn weird. We want orgies. We've always had orgies. I know. Why are you not letting us have these? It's the weirdest thing. So uh, she goes to yell at Roman about this, but ultimately their conversation turns into him going down on her. He applies vampire speed to his tongue. Hello. What the fuck? (laughs) I want to know, because Chris is here, I need to ask you, Chris, how many dots in celerity is this? Like on the basis of this, of the oral sex here? Purely the oral sex. You know, I'm going to say only only one, probably. I, I feel like Roman has more, but you yeah. surely you have to rein it in. Because I'm just thinking about, like, there are physics involved, too, in celerity. Like, people don't like to think about it. But, like, if you throw something while you're running that fast, that sort of thing, the kind of force involved with moving your tongue, like, superhumanly yeah. fast, I mean, I think you just have to be careful. You got to tone it down. Maybe when they're getting down with each other and they've you now you've got some fortitude involved. Mm. then, you know, maybe you can really, really let loose. But with Immortal, um, no. If you plan on having any happy times with this Clitoris again in the future, maybe you better start slow, I think. All right, all right. <laughs> but do you think a vampire with Celerity 1 could pull this off? I th- Yeah, for sure. Like, the fastest you can move your tongue, double that. I think that's just fine. Yeah, that's livable. Yeah. <laughs> so, that is more than enough to, to put her over the top. But then, Roman gets really into it. 
<laughs> and guess what? His splint's gone. He had Laszlo taken out. So his fangs come out and he bites her leg, which is a one hell of a mood killer. I have to give some context to this scene because this is the scene where he, this is partly because he's super hungry, right? Yes, he hasn't had breakfast. Once again, this is 13-year-old boy shit because before you have sex, it's fine if you need like a glass of water. It's okay. Like if there's some minor impediment, like if you need, if you need to go pee first, that's fine. Like do that. I mean, this guy is literally, he's about to faint. He's so hungry. That shit is dangerous when you're a vampire, but he's like, no, no, like, I'll sustain my, you know, damned soul afterward. Let me go ahead and, like, do this first. And <laughs> it's not like he has to go hunt. Like, he's got a bag of blood in the fridge ready to go. I think it's in the microwave. He's already started warming it's it up. It's ready. Yeah. It's like your your breakfast is getting cold. Like, eat your fucking eggs and yeah. then have sex. I agree. And I think that, like, you got to take care of yourself before you can take care of somebody else, you know? <laughs> I agree. And everything we've seen about from Shanna indicates she is going to be ready to go in 10 minutes or whatever after you're done drinking. Like, yeah. There's no danger that she's going to be like, oh, no, the moment has passed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, I completely agree. But no, he doesn't do that. And so he bites her in the leg and he's like, no, baby, it's OK. Like, I was just hungry. <laughs> 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 like, next time we'll make sure I have a full meal before we try to do that again. And she's like, oh, OK. I was also struck because a lot of vampire romance has biting in it, but the biting is sexually enjoyable. Yeah. Or, like, enjoyable on a different level than sex. And this book doesn't do that. It doesn't position the bite as super painful either. Shauna specifically says it's just surprising. Right. But I was kind of surprised that the book doesn't go there with the bite. The bite doesn't figure into it because current paranormal romance would, I think, almost always have the bite be a sensual explosion. And so I was kind of going, where, what the fuck is this tame ass bite shit that is just like, oh, it's just a regular bite. That strikes me as very much a Vampire the Masquerade thing. I don't know if they like invented it, but I definitely know that in, in Vampire the Masquerade, like the act of being bitten is supposed to feel fantastic. I feel like there's an element of that, at least like in Interview with the Vampire, you know, Anne Rice's vampires, mm-hmm. there's certainly like this kind of union, all that. But yeah, like it definitely vampirism is positioned differently in this story. I feel like. It is unusual that there's not really any attempt to make vampirism in itself sexy here. It does seem to be like the enemy of romance that is getting in their way. That's a good point. Which is so fucking weird. It's like, why the fuck did you write a vampire romance novel if you didn't want to interact with the fact that he's a fucking vampire? (laughs) Except to go, well, sometimes it makes sex difficult. Like, (laughs) what? What are you doing? Yeah, it's honestly, like, another way in which this book is weirdly like Twilight. Yes. Because Twilight feels so much... For those who don't know, I have read the entire fucking series. I have I have read Midnight Sun. I've read all of it. Twilight feels so much like Stephanie Meyer just wanted to write a teen romance, and the supernatural elements to it are, like, an annoyance that she has to deal with. <laughs> and I'm like, you wrote the book! You didn't have to do this! I do want to stop here and ask Chris, what vampire clan do you think Roman Dragonesti fits most neatly into? I don't think he fits probably into any of them well, but I am curious about your your Vampire the Masquerade thoughts. What, what do you think, Miles? He's a fucking venture, right? I mean, that's the vibe for sure. Like, if you're a CEO, I think there's a good chance that you're that you're a venture and the dominate fits, the fortitude mm-hmm. fits. Venture have this selective feeding thing too. 
So, like, I think if you were going to try to get the feel of Roman in your Vampire the Masquerade campaign, you'd probably go with Ventru for, like, the wealthy and influential angle. Or you mm-hmm. would do Tremere, because Tremere, like, they have heightened senses, they can do telepathy and stuff. They have thaumaturgy, so you can do, like, blood magic. And it's also the only way I know of in Vampire to actually teleport. Ah, uh, okay. And it's similar to the teleportation in this book. There's a ritual called Escape to a True Friend. So you're actually teleporting to someone you trust, which I think is important to this Aww. book, the way that... um the way that it works but like none of them fit exactly i think like the most important things in this book probably are like the mind control and the speed those are like the really distinctive ones and no two clans have both of those things no clan has has both my thought is if you wanted to custom do something in in masquerade i would go with toreador actually because it doesn't have a weakness that interferes with these vampires Mm -hmm. like the ventru feeding restriction or whatever they do have aspects which is like the heightened senses and telepathy They do have presence for, like, charisma. They have celerity for super speed. And their normal clan weakness is that they can become entranced by things they find beautiful. Mm. You can do a bloodline that instead of presence has dominate. And their weakness is instead of being entranced, their eyes go red and they get a raging erection. I think that... (laughs) (laughs) I saw it coming. I was still delighted by it. I think at that point, you've pretty much got these vampires. Like, that plus teleportation... And you've nailed it. Gorgeous. So, uh, yeah, so he bites her leg. It definitely kills the mood. Also, Gregory kills the mood when he shows up. He walks in, and this guy is, like, super fucking annoying, but he's, like, he's redeemed by the fact that he's really into, like, Roman's cause and, like, doing all this shit. And so he comes in, and he's like, hey, you know, we've been trying to figure out how to get poorer vampires to try our stuff, because they might not have, like, the resources to do it. Which is honestly, like, kind of cool. I was like, yeah, you should be doing this. This is exactly the angle you should be taking. You've already got, like, clearly, like, the middle class and most of the higher class vampires doing this. But, like, there are obstacles to synthetic blood for the poorer vampires. And I think you should be dealing with this. Sorry, I was outraged that we weren't talking about vampire universal basic income. I was like, what the fuck is this? You're trying to sell to the poor. But <laughs> all right. No, you're right. Within the world of this CEO millionaire vampire, you're correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were definitely a few moments in this book where I was like, why are we doing vampire capitalism? Like, why are the vampires doing capitalism? But whatever, I, I get it. You know, Roman can't afford to pay any higher taxes. He's got an entire harem to support. I mean, think about <laughs> the situation <laughs> he's in. <laughs> So Shauna tags along to like help Gregory do market research because she's coming up with all these like stupid names and ideas. <laughs> so he's like, you should come along. This is the one point in the book in a book that is otherwise very structurally sound where it was clearly the author was just like, I do not give one fuck how she gets to the next scene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You're so right. The author uh, just like punted and went, I don't that's fucking care. Correct. That's factually correct. As an author myself, I have done worse to go, <laughs> I don't fucking know. I just want them to be in a shop that sells sunglasses so they are, okay? <laughs> That's right. One of the people they bring in turns out to be another one of Ivan's minions in disguise, who kills a Highlander and captures Laszlo and plants another bomb. This one goes off just as sunrise starts to hit, so Roman can't do anything about it, but... Roman has been hard at work on his stay awake during the day serum because now there's a point to it because it can help him have like a normal life with Shauna. So like it's untested, but he has a sample and he drinks it anyway. And he ends up being able to walk around during the day. (sighs) 
this Hank Pym motherfucker, why would you? Yeah. Like, there's so much at stake. It's like, this is so important. I'm just going to pour chemicals down my fucking throat and see what happens. <laughs> it's okay, Chris, it worked. But he's like, he doesn't remember that he has a fucking weakness to the goddamn daylight. Yeah, he's like walking around going like, oh, God, no, I must have been hit by the bomb, which is why I have these burns. Yeah, it's like, uh, but I've got to go. I'm the only one who can't help. <laughs> I know. <laughs> You are actively making it worse, you dumb shit. I don't totally get why it's, like, so important. Like, when Ivan is planning this thing, he's like, haha, I will do it at sunrise, and that way he won't be able to do anything about it. <laughs> and then Roman is like, but I won't be able to do anything about it, and I have to drink this. And it's like, why did you, like, what did you do about anything? You did nothing. He did, he lifted one heavy thing. Yeah, there you're you right, go. he did lift the heavy thing off of Radinka, so that was important. All right, that's fair enough. So anyway, uh, Radinka is, like, hurt, but she's okay, like I mentioned. And they go back to the safe room, where Roman decides to take a shower, and Shanna is like, I have to fucking show my devotion to this man. <laughs> now is the time. Now is the time well, for me- covered in birth. For me to show my devotion to this creature of the night. So she's like, I'm gonna jump in the shower with him. And that leads to you know, a pretty hot shower scene, I gotta say. And, and then yeah. they- And a pretty hot actual sex scene- they move into the bed from the shower, which I found completely unnecessary. I'm like, just do fucking what's wrong with the shower? So they they fuck and uh, it's great for them. and They're all in love with each other. And once they're done fucking for the first time, Rowan and Shanna are like, oh, shit. You know what we should, we should probably do with this newfound power that you have to stay awake during the day is we should have sex. And then <laughs> and then we should probably rescue Laszlo. Because he was teleported to Ivan's house, but he's not in any danger until nightfall when they all wake up. So Shauna and Roman go to rescue him, um, which they do pretty easily. Yeah. But while they're there, Shauna's dad shows up. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. I didn't see this coming. Legit did not see this I coming. I did not either, no. And he is like, hey, honey, great to see you. So I'm secretly a CIA agent and the leader of a special team of vampire slayers with psychic powers, which is why you have psychic powers. And Shauna's like, what? I appreciated that they didn't do the thing where she, because Roman already knew about her dad because mm -hmm. they had done some digging and they didn't do the thing where she's like, you already knew and you didn't tell me. They do do the thing where like she goes with him so he won't hurt Roman. They kind of do the like, she left me because I'm a monster slash I left you so you won't get hurt miscommunication, yes. but it doesn't last long. Thank God. And like she saves him from being staked at one point. So like he kind of it's a good reason for him to not totally go down that road which thank you and also now it is officially time to like fuck ivan up for good fuck this guy we're gonna go get him so roman actually calls him and is like hey so i have like 200 soldiers here and you have like 50 so we could just like come there and murder you but what we should do instead is settle this with a duel and ivan is like yeah man silver swords at not dawn at 2 a.m <laughs> silver swords at 2 a.m doesn't have the same ring to it but you know whatever and he's like, yeah, no, totally. It'll, it'll just be me. And then he tells all the soldiers to show up anyway, because <laughs> of course he fucking does. So now Shauna's dad leaks this to her because he wants like really obviously like she picks up on the fact that he's doing it. <laughs> and uh, he wants her to like lead all of Roman soldiers to the side of the duel in the hopes that everybody will kill each other. And she does. But all that happens is that Roman just, like, beats Ivan in the duel. Like, it's really... There's there's nothing, like... Nothing happening around them really impacts this. He just wins because he's better. They do this whole thing earlier where Jean-Luc is like, I am the bitter swordsman, and you have not done sword fighting in forever. And, you know... Yes! That's my terrible French accent. Don't, you know, I hope you enjoyed that. 
they make this big deal of it and like they do this whole thing where like Roman goes to church. Oh my god. And they all pray for him because like he's probably gonna die because he hasn't fought in forever. And then he just shows up and he fucking wins. It's just, <laughs> it's just super easy. It's such a non-issue. The fight takes place over two pages. That's it. Yeah. He makes him swear to stop attacking his people or he'll kill him. And then like Ivan's ladies stab yeah! him to death. And they take control of the coven in what feels like an attempted girl power move, but is really kind of too little too late at this point. It is, but I still appreciated it. I was still like, fuck yeah. I appreciated it too. So Shauna's dad shows up and is like, oh, you didn't kill each other. I wanted you to kill each other. And Roman and Shauna are like, nope. And also we're engaged, motherfucker. But the CIA stakeout team remains a threat. They're called the stakeout team, which is hilarious. Yes. And it turns out that Casimir, the guy that originally turned Roman, is still alive and coming for revenge. And what I thought was the setup for the next book. But it turns out it's not, because apparently it's that one girl in the harem. But whatever. We get a very brief little meet-cute between Connor, who's the head of the Highlander security team, and Alyssa, who's a member of the CIA team. And yeah. I really thought that was that was the setup for the next pairing. That makes so much sense. I don't think that book is for ages if that book is even in the series. Do you know how many books are in the series? No, I do not. 16. Wow. Okay. That makes sense. Cool. There's, there's so much world building. I mean, really. Like there really is. Yeah, honestly, there's like, okay, so that's that's the end of my explanation. But I want to get into like what I thought of the book. Thank you. Thank you so much, Miles, for that mansplanation. All right, Chris and Miles, I am curious, what did you think of this book overall? I thought it was fine. Like, I thought that Chris is right in that the world building is actually really good. Like, the, it's a really interesting vampire setting. So there's a lot going for it in that regard. The sex scenes I thought were pretty well written as sex scenes go. Like, I, I was never, like, not into them to varying degrees, but I was never like, oh, this is not sexy. You know what I mean? And then, like, the rest of the prose is, like, it's workmanlike. Yes. It does what it needs to do. And there are some points where she tries to do a little too much. Yes. She tries to get a little fancy and cute. But for the most part, this is clearly a writer who recognizes her strengths and weaknesses and is like, I'm not here to do, like, fucking poetic shit. I'm here to write about sexy vampire fucking and dentists. And, like, and for the most part, she does that. So, like, this is kind of the kind of book that, like, before we started, since we started with Tessa Dare, you know yes. what I mean? I kind of had some pretty, not high expectations, but, like, that's some pretty good shit to start with. Oh, yeah. Before we read Tessa Dare, this is, like, what I would have considered to be a pretty good romance novel. You know what I mean? Mm, mm, okay, I am super spoiled, so I have different feelings about this, but I, I want to hear also Chris's take. I, I didn't find anything really special about the prose or, or whatever. I think you're right. Like workmanlike is kind of the thing here. But I also think there's an aspect to that. I've read romance writers say that the core, like the core romance is sort of like the easy and boring part. And it's sort of the stuff that you do around that that is fun and that is distinctive. And I really think that was the case here. Like I didn't necessarily believe in Shanna and Roman. Like, Shanna's cool. Roman's not really. Their attraction to each other seems to be pretty much like they just happen to be super horny for each other, and that's fine. But the self-awareness 
is really what the quality of the book hinges on from page to page. Because yeah. when it is having fun with genre conventions and kind of like commenting on how silly these proceedings are, then it's good. Mm-hmm. I think the more earnest it tries to be, <laughs> the more time it wastes on what is always going to be like a pretty stock romance at the center. Then it's like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, isn't he a vampire and she's a dentist? Like, I don't need all this shit. You know, like I can read this anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i thought that like in places it was quite good there are some good lines definitely there's some good turns of phrase oh, yeah. um, mainly in dialogue i would have loved for it to be slightly more cutting a little sharper on like the satire of the genre mm. but it doesn't want to go there i think it wants to make fun a little bit of the trappings or at least have fun with the trappings but it doesn't want to go to really a satire of romance and i actually that was kind of a question i had for you bob was like if a romance did that, if if this author decided to take to task, for example, like the super quick feelings these two are having for each other at that kind of like core of the genre stuff or like the aspect of the ha- happily ever after that is maybe not mm-hmm. quite so realistic or simple as it's portrayed, would that be a step too far? Would that make romance fans feel like they didn't get what they paid for? Probably yes. However, this, I would say, is a clumsy execution of insta-love. Mm-hmm. Mm which is what they refer to it in the genre. And I think the central problem of the book is also clumsily executed in that. So there's always a reason why they can't be together. That's all. That's very important in a romance novel. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's because, you know, oh, that's my boss or that's my brother's best friend, whatever it is. But the thing is an internal problem and it is solved so simply And that problem is he's a vampire and they're demons. She thinks about that twice (laughs) and then she never thinks about it again because she just is like, no, you're not. You're a good person. That's it. That's the end of that fucking problem. That is the reason they can't be together. And then there are these like other trappings around it that he's protecting her. But those are kind of incidental. In fact, I would say that my chief complaint about the book is that to me, this is a romance novel. But I don't think Carolyn Sparks necessarily wanted to write a romance novel. Mm. I think she wanted to write a kind of goofy, kind of CIA shenanigans, spycraft, dumb shit novel. But she wanted to have this other stuff in it. And so she kind of mashed some genres together. And I think that what you get is very special in how bizarre it is. But I think that the romance suffers for it. Hmm. And that's me because I have read so fucking much romance that I was like, what? What are you doing? And I also think that it may have suffered because it's 2005 and paranormal romance. There just wasn't that much of it. There, mm. It's not that there wasn't none, but there wasn't a ton out there. And so the genre beats hadn't been well established. And this kind of combining paranormal romance with goofy hijinks, as far as I know, hadn't really been done yet. Now, there's a million ways to do this story. And they would all be very interesting and kind of detailed. And the problem would be very different because now in paranormal romance, like, you find out he's a vampire fucking immediately. That is that is the first thing. And that is not the problem. There might be a problem attendant with it. Like, I don't know, he's a certain kind of vampire. But like, the heroine isn't going, but I can't be with you because you're a vampire and vampires are bad. Like now, uh, this is my monster fucker feelings that self-publishing came out and Kindle uh, boomed. 
And everybody realized how deep the well of monster fucker goes. And it is a deep, dark well. <laughs> and yeah. so now this feels like nothing because I'm like, the most heroines in a monster fucker novel are probably going to go like, hell yeah, give me that monster dick. Like, whatever. The problem isn't going to be like, oh, no, you're a monster. Like, it'll be different problems. Huh. It's a very archetypical book in some ways, and they're yes. very archetypical characters where it's like, okay, Roman is, his personality is he's the hero of a romance novel. Bingo. So, like, he's rich, he's broody, he has a lot of, like, issues with his self-esteem, he doesn't think he deserves love, and he's very possessive of the woman in the book. Which is just every romance novel I've read, except for fucking, uh... Cat Sebastian? Yeah, the Cat Sebastian one, yeah. But every other romance novel I've read has basically had the same kind of protagonist. And I think the other issue, and this is typical of romance novels and not something you both would necessarily know, because you have to read a lot of them to recognize when this happens. The first book in a series, and maybe this is true of other genres, tends to suffer because it is setting up the world. So the initial romance that you set up a series with tends to be kind of nothing because it, the book can't support that. <laughs> They're like, okay, we don't have fucking time for this other shit. But I think you should be able to do both. <laughs> well, oh, oh, I agree. You certainly should be able to do both. Right. But I think that oftentimes that is not the case and that the second and, you know, the third tend to be much more juicy. And then by the fourth, the fourth is often the time, because a lot of romance uh, books, uh, this one obviously does not, 16 of them, Usually by the latter books in a series, you are getting into the dark shit and it's like the villain of the previous ones. Now it's the redemption arc or the grovel novel where the guy who's been the complete villainous asshole for the entire rest of the series, he has to redeem himself in some way. And that's the juicy book. The other thing that makes me go, Carolyn Sparks wanted to write in a different genre is that the rest of the books do focus a lot on the stakeout team hmm. and like a lot of trying to infiltrate and figure out how they're going to disband this team or romance them or whatever is going to happen. So to me, I'm like, oh, she really wanted to write this too. This is like her thing, which that's a, that's a total subgenre of romance. There's a lot of like, you know, my hot bodyguard or my CIA handler or whatever romance novels out there. What is special about this is that it jams together a bunch of different shit and it does so in some very bizarre ways. You know what What it feels like to me a little bit is maybe this would be better if it were like a little more like, not even smutty, but like a little more porn-like in the sense yes. that like what it seems natural for Shanna is not for her to like fall in this great love and get married at the end, but just to sort of become a more sophisticated monster fucker over the course of the story. Because yeah. it's not unbelievable that she's hot for Roman and vice versa. It's unbelievable that she now wants to jump right to getting married. Like a lot of shit has happened and there's nothing about him that indicates that you're going to get a better deal from him as a husband. You know, he seems insufferable to live with. Like, <laughs> you know, like I'd rather live like in his building being fed brownies than like yeah. actually with him, like in his room. Nah, it's all right. She's there. He's going to figure out a way that he can have babies and they're going to be fine. Yeah. Oh, my God. Should we get into the sights, sounds and feels? 
elves. What did your elf eyes see? There's a lot in this book about like color. Like color yes. is kind of a, a theme here. You know, ever all the vampires like to be in black and white and it's all drab and Rowan doesn't like it. And Shauna represents like the like color for him. And I want to talk about that actually in, in a few minutes. But what I want to mention, though, is that for me, from a perspective of imagery, I just really appreciated the Scottish Highlanders. Yes. I just feel like they make the book so much more colorful. Not in like an actual color standpoint, but like they elevate it a little bit because mm-hmm. they are different and they're not what you expect from a vampire. You're not expecting to be like, oh, yeah, the vampires are all Scottish, <laughs> you know, and it just like it brings some kind of light and humor and a sort of different kind of color to the story that I don't think is going to be there if they're just like regular ass vampires. I love Connor. I love the Scottish Rams. So. And for the listener, they are wearing kilts and sporins like they are kitted out. All right, Chris, what did your elf eyes see? For me, it has to do with imagery as well, but it also has to do with diction. So this book has a really bad habit of using the word groin as a euphemism for penis. You can't do that shit because if you say manhood, it's not like a concrete thing that you can develop a mental image of. But when you say that someone's groin swelled, that's a thing that can happen. It's not the thing you're thinking of. (laughs) And so that was the problem for me is that the sex scenes generally were effective, but whenever something is happening to a groin, I am imagining something that is not sexy. So that that was the big one for me. Okay. Okay. Bob, what did your elf eyes see? This is a quote. The way the author paints this scene made me lose it. So it's internal monologue of her seeing Roman naked. Ahem. Her gaze lowered. His manhood was relaxed and nestled in the midst of black curls. <laughs> she wanted to kiss it and make it dot, 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 bigger. <laughs> look, look, I am not a person who thinks that dicks are gross. I think they're beautiful and striking. When you talk about them correctly, this makes it sound like his dick is a sleeping kitten. <laughs> and I was just sitting here, mouth agape, going, why have you done this to us? And also, kiss it and make it bigger. Look, I swear to God, I have read that phrase in fanfic written by teenagers who are like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what doing a sex is. Like, you are a grown-ass woman, Carolyn Sparks. This is not acceptable. Kiss it and make it bigger sounds like it's like a really gross mini game in like a sexy video oh, game. But you gotta tap the A button. Tap the A button to kiss it and make it bigger. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, fuck me. This was, yeah, I had beef with the sex scenes and I can get into it later because like as a person who's written them, I'm like, fuck you. Seriously, fuck you. Okay. Miles, what did your Vulcaneers hear? My Vulcaneers kept coming back to this slide for some reason. And it's because I think it's like indicative of Carolyn Sparks' limits in this book and the, what happens when she attempts to surpass them. Mm-hmm. So it's talking about he's talking about the black and white stuff. They're getting ready for the vampire ball, and he's like, oh, is everything black and have gargoyles? And they're like, because we're vampires, get over it. But he then starts thinking about Shauna. She was never black and white. She came in colors. Blue eyes, pink lips, and red hot kisses. <laughs> it's like, I see what you're trying to do, but you just missed. It's like, stay in your lane, Carolyn Sparks. Don't try to do these things. You're not good at them. At least not in this book. Maybe you get better. Chris, what did your Vulcan ears hear? I only have like one little example here, but just throughout, there are certain 
as Miles was just pointing out, certain lines and especially certain dialogue that is just, it's just a little bit ridiculous. And the thing mm-hmm. that is difficult about it is if I thought I were supposed to laugh, I would love it. But I can't <laughs> be sure. And that's really distracting. Like, this is the ending of a chapter on, uh, on page 237 here. Yeah, this is the end of chapter 17. It, this is where uh, Roman has just revealed to her that vampire sex is a thing. And she says, I'm having a hard time believing you can satisfy 10 women without laying a hand on them. And he says, then I will prove to you that vampire sex is real. <laughs> yeah, right. How do you propose to do that? He smiled slowly by having it with you. <laughs> <laughs> Check and mate. Oh my God. That's so good. The idea that not only that you would say that, but that you would say it with like a seductive smile. It's just, it's so funny. And like, sometimes those lines, I would laugh out loud and it's like, I don't know if this is good, but I do love it. <laughs> oh, I love it. Bob, what is your Vulcan news here? This is so fucking important to me. Okay. It's a moment in Roman's room and Shauna is going, no, we can't be together. But she doesn't want to say that. So instead of saying, I can't be with you, she says, I can't believe you have a toilet. (laughs) He looked surprised. Oh, well, I use it. You use a toilet? (laughs) Yes. Our bodies only require red blood cells, stuff like plasma, and the added ingredients from fusion cuisine are all unnecessary and become waste. Oh, that was really more than she needed to know. Just this little exchange where Carolyn Sparks turns to the camera and says, my headcanon is that vampires definitely have to shit sometimes. (laughs) This is the weirdest example of world building I think I've ever seen. I loved it. I love it too. But Stephanie Meyer is out here saying, you know, I can headcanon that vampires sparkle. And Carolyn Sparks out here saying, vampires can wreck your toilet. <laughs> I was like, God <laughs> damn. Like, what a fucking move. Like, I'm glad you told me, but I don't understand why it was important to you. That's it. Exactly. This is the flip side of having a world builder at the wheel. This this took me back to on Mega Dumbcast talking about Kevin Sambita, where sometimes yes. he says some wild shit and it's like, I see what's happened is there are a number of steps here where he just got himself really concerned. Like his eyebrows were furrowed figuring out like, but if magic is based on magic words, why doesn't everybody just say the magic words? And then he comes out with this, this nuts rule with no context. And you have to do the detective work to figure out like, why did this matter to the author? And I think it's the same thing here. I think probably it was her whole thing about like fusion cuisine and like doing food mixed with blood. And trying to figure out like, okay, well, they can't metabolize food clearly because otherwise they could live on food. So what happens to it? But we don't get any of that. We just get like, by the way, I use the potty. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. All right. Miles, what did your human heart feel? Yeah, I was reading this book and I was having a lot of feelings about all the religious stuff. Yes. uh, Which I expected. I mean, it's a vampire story. There's a lot of religious stuff traditionally involved in vampire stories. I was fine with it. But uh, there was like it was just interesting because he's he's a monk who is now a scientist. Mm-hmm. So it's like the book is really positing a, a world in which science and faith kind of go hand in hand and can be equally valid, which I kind of appreciated. Yeah. And then I I gotta say like the scene where he goes to confession. Yeah. Like I was really like deeply moved by it in a way that I'm not usually moved by religious stuff. I was like, I, I'm an atheist. What the fuck is happening? <laughs> yeah, I was just really like, I thought uh, just a really good scene. And when, and like the line about where, where he says, uh, 
So he's trying to convince Roman that God has not abandoned him, which is a thing he very much believes. And then he says, you do this not out of pride, but out of love. And since love comes from the father, he has not abandoned you. Roman scoffed. You do not understand the magnitude of my sins. Perhaps you do not understand the magnitude of God's forgiveness. And I just, it's a really great line. And like, I, again, as a completely non-religious person at all, um, I was really moved by it and I did not expect to be. And so that's what my human heart felt. I think that nails, we were talking earlier about how this is a weird vampire book. It's a weird vampire romance. I think it is because this is not a power fantasy or a, like fucking the darkness fantasy. It's fundamentally a redemption fantasy. Um, yeah. That's what the vampirism is doing here. Mm, okay. Like that. That's good context. Thank you. All right, Chris, what did your vampire heart feel? I think the most important part of enjoying this book is like getting on its wavelength. And I'm going to agree with both of you that the Highlanders are what do it. Like as soon oh, fuck yeah. as Shanna sees the Highlanders like in their kilts, so ridiculous, so wonderful. It's like, this is a sex romp. This is like, this is like you only have to watch like five minutes of Tenchi Muyo to get like, okay, this is what we're doing. That is what put me in this book. I, w- I could have done with a lot more Highlanders. Mm-hmm. But I think just Same. their just their presence. I know this is ridiculous. This is like the just this is just like a multifarious fantasy of like a sexy ass silly world, and mm. that's just where we're living. And I think that that worked perfectly. That got me into the book. I like that. All right, Bob. What did your vampire heart feel? Okay, so there is a moment at the end. It was a literal Deus Ex Machina, whereby God, presumably actual Christian God, makes Roman immune to silver. To show him that he's not actually evil, he's a good person and God forgives him. And my mind was fucking blown. Like, the idea that, (laughs) that, one, that there is a miracle in this book. Two, that this was it. Like, why not go big and have Shauna say, oh, and Roman, I'm pregnant. Miraculously, your sperm was not dead and now we're going to have a baby. (laughs) Because the dead sperm was a minor plot point for the story. Yeah. I feel like that would have been more of a thing. Instead, like, God essentially cured the vampire equivalent of lactose intolerance. (laughs) My human heart was so overjoyed, though, that this was the thing that happened. That it was like, and God loves you enough that you can touch silver now. I was like, (laughs) thank you. Thank you, Carolyn Sparks. For going to this place and choosing that of all the things. Like, it's like, God loves you and you can eat garlic bread now. <laughs> what the <laughs> fuck are we doing here? Oh, my God. And those were the sights, sounds, and feels of How to Marry a Vampire Millionaire. The last thing that we talk about before we get out of here is hottest sex scene. Miles, which sex scene do you feel like? was the spiciest. I think it was the mind sex, unquestionably. Really? Okay. Yeah. I know they try to do a thing where it's like, oh, it's not as good if you're not here physically. And like, I get that. But like, in terms of what was getting me going, absolutely. I think like the mind sex, oh, in your mind, I have multiple hands and I can do all this Mm. weird shit. You don't know what's going to happen. Like, I don't know. I I thought it was, it was the high point sexiness was. All right, Chris, your thoughts, hottest sex scene. It's not exactly a sex scene, but the one mm-hmm. that I thought was the hottest was the one where he uh, turns out to be dead because she, he's like asleep in her bed. And so mm-hmm. she's like trying to wake him up and she goes from sort of like shaking him, flickering the lights to then like pretending she's about to give him a blowjob to get him to like wake up, but then finds out that no, this is an actual corpse. <laughs> 
that was that was like the combination of, like this isn't a horror book by any stretch but i felt like that was a good vampire sex beat whereas like the mind sex had lots of potential but i couldn't stop thinking about like all that could have been done with this that isn't being done mm. as a person who has read a bunch and then also written i had major beef with it but I will say for me, the shower blow job was probably the hottest. Like it felt the closest mm. to emotionally meaningful because it was like a choice that she was making to go. I am showing you how much you mean to me. So I'm going to do this. And not because like a blow job is an obligation, but because like it was a beat in the emotional arc of the story. Sure. I will say Sparks used the phrase she squatted down, which is not a phrase. I ever want to hear in regards to anything sexual, unless we're doing something real weird. <laughs> I, I just, uh, there's diction choices you can't do. So I, the other thing I want to say is I recognize when someone doesn't actually want to write a sex scene and I get it from a writing perspective. <laughs> it is incredibly difficult. It's like writing a fight scene or choreographing a great wrestling match. Ideally, it's supposed to be engaging, surprising. Like it's supposed to manipulate your emotions. It should do something bodily for you. It should create tension or horniness or something. You also have to remember where everybody's body is and you have to have this like spins on different moves because otherwise it's going to melt into the morass of every wrestling match you've ever seen or every sex scene you've ever read. And so I can get why Carolyn Sparks was like, nah, it'll be less than a page and it'll be mainly broad strokes narration because I don't want to write each beat of this encounter. I have done that a handful of times myself, and it, but it still feels cheap because I would really rather an author put out a subpar one that had actual beats in it than this like hand-waving acknowledgement that the sex is happening and everyone's enjoying it. It's like, it's so tell-don't-show. <laughs> yeah. I think that's why I like the mind sex so much because it felt like there was more thought put into it. Like, and, it was, and like you said, it was the only weird sex in the book. It was the only one in the book where it's like, okay, I'm fucking a vampire right now, you know? In contrast to that, the shower scene you were talking about, it definitely stuck out to me. Like, I don't know from romance novels, but I do know this sexy shower scene ends with her uh, jerking him off onto her hip. Yes. And then they just walk away, which felt like the most neutral sex scene ending. It's just like, yeah, we're like, OK, we're done. Like we would have to if he came anywhere else, I would have to write more. So let's do hip. <laughs> yeah, hip is nothing. But I thought the fact that she at least like started to give him a blowjob which i was like why the fuck didn't you finish giving him a blowjob is this right. a 2005 thing i want to know what that shit tastes like <laughs> I, yes i had major questions i was like is there a blood flavor does it taste a little bit like iron like i got questions but yeah. apparently yeah, yeah. carolyn sparks didn't want to know <laughs> carolyn sparks has no answers yeah my final question is, do you feel like, and this is mainly for Chris, who is gone on a deep goddamn dive about vampires and also has been on the Hard Choices Vampire episode. Do you feel like you got the vampiric experience with the sex? And if not, what are these specific things that you feel like it failed at as far as like, what is the vampiric sex encounter? I reject the idea that there is one sexy Ooh. vampiric thing i think that you can do whatever you want with it i think twilight for example has lots of problems but one of the things that gets on my nerves is when people say like this isn't a vampire story like who the fuck says like it there is no consistency people can do whatever they want with this and there's a bunch of stuff you can mine from this thing about vampirism it's so broad here i do think the failure to really dig into vampirism as a sexual thing at all is really the failure the mind sex mm. is where we could have done something there about like different kinds of intimacy or like 
anxiety about being controlled, which is something that's mm-hmm. all through this book, the way that he's like directly crafting her subjective experience of sex rather than giving it to her kind of manually, mm. so to speak. All that stuff could have been cool, but I just don't think this author saw vampirism itself as a topic related to sex, which mm. is why there's so little like real vampire sex in this book. So there, I think it's a failure. It didn't give me, it didn't give me an experience of vampire sexuality. I was open to what this book was trying to do. Okay, I think that's a fair answer. So we've done it. We have read How to Marry a Millionaire Vampire. Thank you. Thank you for going on this journey. Thank you for being part of my 15-point victory, Miles and Chris. And Chris, thank you so much for being willing to join us on this journey. Oh, thank you. It was so much fun. And Chris, please tell us about the myriad work that you do on the internet and how wonderful it is because it's fucking great, y'all. I do Make a Dumb Cast, which is a daily podcast where I talk about the dumbest thing on each and every page of a role-playing game or role-playing game supplement. I am just finishing up a season about three modules for the old TSR Marvel Superheroes role-playing game, the Face Rip system. Previously, I've done Heroes Unlimited, Ninjas and Super Spies, Beyond the Supernatural, a supplement for the Street Fighter role-playing game. So that's my daily podcast. You can go to podbean.com slash Cast for that. And then I also have a Patreon where you can get access to Fuck, Mary Slay. Uh, which is a monthly series where I do episodes with Claire Mulcairn about whether we would fuck, marry, and or slay all the various clans from Vampire the Masquerade. And we've just finished with clans, and now I'm on to doing bloodlines uh, with rotating guests. Hey, Bob, while we're on mic, you want to do some of these with me? I would fucking love to! Yum, 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 monsters! All right, yeah, I'll remember what you said about monster fucking. I'll pick some good ones. Thank you, yum, yum. Yeah, absolutely. Go check that out. It is one of your finest dollars a month. It is so worth it. It's tremendous. And also, if you want more good horny Chris content, and you absolutely should. Chris was a guest on our Hard Choices 90s Star Trek episode. And there are some very interesting takes that come out of both Miles and Chris. Like they go to bat for some people that I was like, oh, man, you made me feel things that I was not expecting to feel. And then hang around because it is the spooky season, go check that Hard Choices feed because Hard Choices Vampires, and it is all vampires, is going to drop and you can enjoy a multitude of rich vampiric takes on what it's like to bone down with media's finest bloodsuckers. So thank you so much for listening and we will see you again the next time I can scrape together those points. The Next Wrestling Fan is produced by Miles Schneiderman and Megan Bob with logo design by Claire Mulcairin. Special thanks to Rafael Medina for our theme song, Learn Buckle. You can follow his creative work on Twitter at EarthMofo, spelled the French way. Also thanks to Kevin McLeod for additional music and stingers, which are licensed under Creative Commons. Find his work at incompetech.filmmusic.io. We're on Twitter and Facebook as The Next Wrestling Fan and in the group The Smash Fiction Fan Faction. You can also follow Miles on Twitter at MJ Schneiderman and Megan Bob at Megan Bobness. The Next Wrestling Fan is made possible by our supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to help us make this show possible, 
Go to patreon.com slash NXT wrestling fan and join our fabulous stable of contributors. They're the best. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, feel free to email us at nxtwrestlingfan at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.